Israel loosens its gun laws in response to the Hamas terrorist attacks. Plus, Second Amendment scholar David Kopel explains his brief in the latest Supreme Court gun case. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today. If you haven't already, you'll get a great overview of what's going on with guns in America. We'll send one email to your inbox every week on Friday. And then, of course, if you want to dig a little bit deeper, you can buy a membership to The Reload, which will get you a second email to your box on uh, Sunday and as well as exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and reporting that you will not find anywhere else. And this show a day early, as well as the opportunity to appear on the show. But this week, we are looking at some of the arguments that have been filed in the Supreme Court's new gun case, uh, United States v. Rahimi. And we actually have one of the amici in that case, one of the uh, scholars who has filed a, a brief with the court, somebody who has been influential with the court in uh, the past on gun cases and is likely to be influential in the future. We have uh, David Kopel with us. He's research director for Independence Institute. Uh, welcome to the show. Welcome back, David. Great. Thank you for having me. And, and uh, congratulations on all, all the great work. You've uh, you've done amazing stuff in a uh, in the uh, fair and accurate uh, reporting on on gun policy issues. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. Uh, can you give people a little bit more of your background for anyone who uh, maybe hasn't read your work before? Sure. The Independence Institute is a state-level think tank uh, founded in 1985 on the eternal truths of the Declaration of Independence. We are the second oldest state-level think tank. I started writing for them in 1988, and I've been uh, a full-time employee here since 1992 as the, the research director. Right. And you've uh, filed a number of briefs with the Supreme Court and other federal courts in Second Amendment cases, right? I filed many, many, many uh, briefs in, in all, all kinds of courts. And my briefs were cited in opinions in the, the Heller case and in McDonald versus Chicago. And then a law review article that I wrote uh, was cited by Justice Thomas's opinion for the court in the uh, the Bruin case. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure you're not going to toot your own horn here, but uh, I will do it for you. You are one of the most influential scholars in this space uh, on the Second Amendment, and the court seems to uh, read what you have to say, and uh, you have filed your own brief in this upcoming case as well. Can you just give us the broad overview of your argument? Sure. And, and the brief, by the way, is on behalf of uh, about nine law professors who write and teach on Second Amendment issues. Uh, Randy Barnett of Georgetown Law School would be the most famous of those. Um, then also the, the Second Amendment Law Center, uh, which is based in Nevada, and uh, one of their staffers, uh, Costas Moros, uh, helped yes. me work on the uh, with the brief. Who's been then, on our show uh, several times yeah, as well. Yeah, great guy. And, mm -hmm. and then, of course, um, the Independence Institute was the, the final amicus party. Uh, so the brief tries to be an actual friend of the court brief in being useful to the court in helping them 
uh, analyze the the issues in in, in this particular case. Uh, and I, I'd say in in one way, it's a little different from some of my previous the the three previous Supreme Court briefs I mentioned, of, among the others I've done. Those were all really straightforward and simple cases. Uh, you know, the, the other side was trying to, to overcomplicate them and, you know, uh, build a lot of nonsense on stilts. But the, the basic point was, in, in, in Heller, is the Second Amendment a normal individual right? And so, therefore, you can't ban somebody from having a handgun in his own home. The McDonald case was, does the Second Amendment, like almost all the rest of the Bill of Rights, apply to the states via the 14th Amendment? And then the Bruin case was, can the Second Amendment, unlike everything else in the Bill of Rights, be limited to being exercised for the right to bear arms only when some government official decides you have a special need? So if, if it's a real right, the, the answers to those questions are, are pretty simple. And therefore, my briefs were, were adding evidence in various ways to get to the correct result. Um, but Rahim is a little more complicated. Rahim is more complicated. And so the, the, the main point of, and well, <laughs> unlike um, the Dick Heller and Otis McDonald and the, the Bruin plaintiffs, uh, Rahimi is definitely somebody who shouldn't have a gun. And, you know, that, I think that that's just obvious common sense and public safety. And it's, Related, at least in a, in a broad sense, uh, to the fact that the Second Amendment uh, is necessary to the security of a free state. And Rahimi having a gun is contrary uh, to public safety and, and security. And that's because of his, uh, his history of domestic abuse and also the, the string of armed crimes that he was, he's been accused of committing. Is that well, just broadly speaking? Yes. But in, in the, the so he's been accused of uh, quite a number <laughs> of armed right. crimes, uh, but he's awaiting trial for that. So he hasn't been convicted yet. So mm -hmm. we'll, we'll see what happens with that. But what he did do is, uh, which seems beyond dispute, is he was having some, he was basically abusing his girlfriend. Right, physically. Uh, in, in, physically in some public space. And some other guy got involved and called him out. And so Rahimi shot at him. And that is what led to a Texas state court issuing an order uh, saying that he was a credible threat to an intimate partner, namely his girlfriend. Because besides shooting at, at the witness, he also uh, threatened to kill the girlfriend if she did anything about it. So... And there's that for purposes of this case, those that's not factually disputed. So what what are we going to do with this? And in, th in thinking about Second Amendment doctrine and the. I think there's as scholars have studied the legal history of the right to arms in, in ever increasing depth, one of the themes that, that comes through is it's okay to take guns away from people who are actively dangerous, like, like Rahimi. 
Uh, you know, this this wasn't something that, ha that happened 30 years ago, and he's been a model citizen ever since. At the same time, and this this is where the bulk of the brief goes. What precedents are proper for thinking about that principle of dangerous dangerousness by an individual? And the brief says, well, the Solicitor General of the United States, which is the one who filed the petition for certiorari and got the case and wants to prosecute Rahimi for violating the federal statute that says, basically, if you're under a domestic violence restraining order, like Rahimi is, then it's a federal felony for you to possess a gun, punishable by up to 15 years in prison. And our brief agrees with the Solicitor General that disarming dangerous people is not an infringement of the Second Amendment. And so, for example, you, you can look some of the precedents about that actually involve things like what Rahimi, what led to Rahimi's restraining order, which is if you are in a public place and threatening to breach the peace or actually breach it, uh, you might have to post a surety for good behavior. That's a, a fairly common law from the 1830s onward or under the common law and some state statutes starting in the colonial period. If you uh, carry arms in a way that, that terrifies the public, uh, then the weapon you use can be taken away and you get in trouble. So that, that's the, the base precedent of precedence. Right. Um, but, uh, but that's what's interesting about your brief, right, is that you agree that dangerousness, uh, that the things that Rahimi has been found to have done, like this, there was a decision by a judge that he was actually dangerous. Yes. Uh, but at the same time, you don't find this law as it currently stands to be constitutional like the Solicitor General does, right? Right. So the, the, the difference is, and this is what's called a, a facial challenge. A facial challenge is where the person challenging the law says this law is unconstitutional on its face in all applications. You know, if, if you had a law that said you, you can never criticize the, pre the president, then that's a facially unconstitutional law. Um, even though there actually might be some criticisms of the president, things that were actually libel uh, for which a person could get in trouble. But the point is the statute is just wrong. Here the statute is half wrong. The one prong of the statute says this goes into effect if the, the federal gun ban, if the individual is the subject of a restraining order issued by a court based on a, quote, credible threat of danger to the domestic partner, the intimate partner is the term of art. And we say, that's fine. That's not an infringement of the Second Amendment. But then the statute goes on to say, well, you can have that, 18 United States Code, Section 922, subsection G8C, Roman numeral one. That one we just talked about is fine. But the other thing says, or the order can simply be something that by its terms tells the subject not to do anything bad. You know, stay away from your your former spouse and you know don't assault her. 
And that's just based on an order not to do something illegal in the future. And in fact, it's not uncommon in contentious divorces or, or similar situations where uh, a judge will issue a mutual restraining order. All right, you know, neither of you have, have violated any laws uh, or made a credible threat to each other, but you know, we, we think you're both kind of a, the judge may be thinking, you're, you're, you're both a pair of jerks, so I'm just going to issue an order that says leave each other alone, don't approach each other when a, within 100 feet or 100 yards or whatever. And we say that one is, un is unconstitutional. That is an infringement because it's not based on any finding at all. There's no finding that the person subject to that ever did anything wrong, ever threatened anybody, or currently poses any danger to anyone. So in short, that, and that's subsection C2. So in short, C1 is swell. It's based on a, there must be a finding of a credible threat. C2 is not, is an infringement of the Second Amendment because it allows a person's rights to be completely stripped based on no finding of anything at all. Okay. And so let's get into <clears throat> the details of this a little bit real quick. Uh, Rahimi himself has been found to be dangerous, right? There was a finding yeah. of dangerousness yeah. as we, as you talked about at the beginning of this. Um, you know, how does that play into the, to your arguments? Like, does it, if he's been found to be dangerous and he's the one challenging this law, does that matter? Um, it, given that you're saying the second part of the statute is what's really constitutionally problematic, uh, does it matter that he meets the first one too? How does that play out in court? We will, that will be an interesting thing to see, and it's not my problem. Um, the, the Supreme Court will figure out what to do with that. And as our brief says, you know, this connection between C1, credible threat, finding of a credible threat, and C2 is, well, I just, or C2, just to leave each other alone, order not based on any findings at all, the court maybe could say, well, C2, the thing that is an infringement, can be severed from the rest of the statute. And yeah. since Rahimi clearly falls under C1, it's okay to go ahead and prosecute him. That, that's a possible result in the case. Okay, so the court, uh, that was going to be my next question. The court could choose to say just this part that right. doesn't have a finding of dangerousness involved uh, can, is unconstitutional, and the first part is not. Uh, we're just striking down this this one part, but Rahim, that would be an interesting outcome, right? They uphold Rahimi's conviction, but say part of this law is unconstitutional. Um, uh, you know, I guess that's uh, why they write in those severability clauses in a lot of these these federal laws, right? Is right. When, when the gun, yeah, severability is is generally presumed by courts. But some legislatures with the, I think the proper way of, of belt and suspenders, which is uh, the best way to do something, to be sure to get what you want legally. Um, the Gun Control Act of 1968 actually has a section in it that says everything is severable. So if you find something wrong with some part of it, uh, we Congress still would have enacted the rest, even if that part we couldn't, it turns out we can't legally enact. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, you know, I guess ideal outcome in your mind would be uh, at the very least to strike down that, uh, that C2 portion. The, Precisely. The, yes. Yeah. 
and and you're not as concerned about whether or not Rahimi uh, Rahimi's conviction is upheld. It's more about this this law itself. That that's exactly right. And we don't. Our brief is only about the the who of who can have their Second Amendment rights limited. We don't get into some topics that are covered in other briefs, including right. r- r- the one by Rahimi's uh, the very well written, excellent brief by his. Uh, federal public defender, which is that there's not enough due process in how this goes on, or that even the things that I talked about, like uh, punishing somebody who uh, has been causing terror to the public in a public place, they would say, well, that that's true, but you didn't just take away Rahimi's right to carry a gun. You made it illegal for him to even possess a gun in his home. And mm. that our, our brief doesn't get into that on, on one side or the other. Okay. So your only concern here for this particular brief is with who, who can be uh, uh, affected by these federal firearms prohibitions, right. these federal restrictions, right. um, and not how they can be affected or things Precisely. of that nature. Yeah. It's, the, it, it's who, who can be restricted in some way on the exercise of their Second Amendment rights. That's, that's our job for the court is to say, it one, it, it's okay for the C1 people, the credible threat, to have their rights restricted. But then really the, the most pages in the brief go into a related doctrinal issue. And we, you know, yeah. we talked about the precedence of people losing some of their right to arms based on a judicial finding of dangerous conduct. Right. And but on top of those, the United States government in lots of lower court cases and a lot of amici in support of the United States in this case, in the Supreme Court, have said, oh, another reason that uh, restricting Second Amendment rights is okay is look at all the precedents we have about restrictions on the right to arms from olden days, you know, for Catholics. Uh, right. For poor people, for sort of categorical. For, for, yeah. For free banks. people of color, for for slaves mm-hmm. and the or, or people who wouldn't swear a loyalty oath during the American Revolution because they happen to believe uh, in a strict interpretation of the Bible where Jesus in Matthew verse five, chapter five, verse thirty four says, swear not at all. And so they they would say, well, yeah, I'm a very loyal American citizen, but I ain't going to swear a loyalty oath because I I will never swear anything. And what we say in the brief is all those precedents, even though the the gun ban lobby loves them and cites them all the time as supposed precedents that can be used to justify modern gun control, we say, no, that's wrong because we've enacted lots of additions to our Constitution to stop those kinds of abuses. And so when you change the Constitution or enact a new Constitution to stop abuses, then you can't today use those old abuses to justify modern gun control laws. Right. So let's go through those quick one by one, because you you guys go through these in the in the brief. Yeah. And I think they can a lot of them be summed up pretty quickly. Uh, But, you know, uh, and a lot of them are, are you know, bigoted essentially, but bans on, on Catholics, uh, in the, really most of those are pre, uh, revolution 
era bands. Oh, from yeah, yes, they England, are. There's, but... only, there's only two of them, really. So the 1689 English Bill of Rights enacted by Parliament that year applied in the United States because the American colonial charters said, said Americans have all the rights of Englishmen as if they'd been born in England. So, and, and all the Americans thought that they had the full set of the English Bill of Rights. The English Bill of Rights uh, enacted in response to uh, laws by the, the wicked Stuart kings, uh, Charles I, Charles II, James II, had attempted to disarm almost the entire English population so they could be put under the tyrannical rule of these kings and their, their standing armies. Right. So, the and so why, why don't those apply now? Well, because the, the 1689 English Bill of Rights uh, right. says that his majesty's subjects, which are Protestants, have the right to arms for their defense. Mm-hmm. So in England, Protestants were about 98% of the population. So there the English Parliament says, no, you can't go around disarming somebody just because he's a political opponent of the king. You know, uh-huh. uh, you, but they carved out that exception there for non-Protestants. Sure. So as of 1656, the French and Indian Wars getting started in the United States and Maryland, not Maryland, Pennsylvania and Virginia enacted arms restrictions on the Catholic population there. That was consistent with the English Bill of Rights because it's Protestants only. But then in 1789, James Madison introduces the Second Amendment in the United States House of Representatives, and it eventually becomes enacted. Madison's notes in introducing it listed what he thought were some of the defects, the weaknesses of the English Bill of Rights. And one of those was arms to Protestants. So in the right to arms amendment that Madison wrote and the American people adopted, we got rid of religion as any basis for taking away somebody's arms rights. You know, he obviously knew about the English right to arms. He could have copied it, but he chose not to. He chose not to include anything with a religious limit. And so what that means is, let's say the First Amendment free exercise of religion, that that had never been enacted. But because we enacted the right to arms amendment the way Madison wrote it, if somebody tried today to restrict arms rights based on religion, like let's say after 9-11, Congress had passed a bill that said American citizens who are Muslims can't have guns, that would have violated the Second Amendment directly. The Second Amendment was enacted to stop, among other things, was enacted to stop religious discrimination in arms rights. Right. So, so the Bill of Rights essentially, yeah, yeah the, the Second so, Amendment, the Bill of Rights yeah. undoes this precedent exactly. and, and makes it Makes it not useful for the Bruin analysis, essentially. Precisely. Not not useful for anything. It's the the anti-Catholic laws are because of our because the Second Amendment was enacted to repudiate religious restrictions. That means the old religious restrictions are examples of laws you can't have. They're they're negative precedents, even though, you know, there's a lot of folks in the gun ban lobby who were saying, oh, look, look what they did to the, how they cracked down on the Catholics in Pennsylvania in 1756. That's a good right. precedent for us to ban arms for other groups or or whatever, to justify modern gun control. Yeah, 
they they'll argue that these were bad laws uh, that are unconstitutional now, but should be viewed as historically relevant for an modern analogs under Bruin, right? Yes, yeah, but their, and right. you're saying it's the exact opposite is the truth. But precisely. Once the Bill of Rights, once the Second Amendment's enacted by the people by ratification in 1791, that obliterates any religious discrimination in arms rights. And that's what our what our American constitutional right to arms became in 1791 and ever since. Yeah. And, and likewise, and, well, they'll, they'll talk about slaves. Yeah, the, the next one that I wanted to get into, because oh, I think sure. these two are kind of related and we can talk about them at the same time. Um, are slaves, you know, freed blacks, um, you know, racial minorities, essentially, right. uh, even post the founding, obviously, uh, up through the Civil War, yeah. essentially. And then uh, Native Americans or Indian tribes uh, where, you, you know, they were both barred from uh, having guns sold to them in most situations. Uh, and you think that the, the sort of the same basic uh, framework was applied, to, which is the idea that neither were part of the people because they didn't view um, slaves as, as part of the people and right. stripped them of all their rights, essentially. And Native Americans were part of uh, sovereign nations at, right. at the, during that time period, right? And, and so... Uh, once that changed, it's the same idea where these aren't things you can point back to as as historical analogs that are justifiable. Right. And so let's do, let's do the, the slaves uh, first. So slavery has what are called badges and incidents that the there are auxiliary things that go along with being a slave. And as you know, the Georgia Supreme Court said in an eight case in the 1850s, one of the incidents of slavery is he is not allowed to have a firearm. And so the slave states typically had laws that said slaves can't have firearms at all, or they said that they can only do it, if they can only have an arm if, if their, their owner uh, gives them written permission, or maybe they get, get permission from a local government official. Well, when we enacted this, the we the people enacted the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery throughout the United States, we also, as the Supreme Court said in a very famous case called the Civil Rights Cases, we also abolished all the badges and incidents of slavery, such as disarmament. And that's why Horace Greeley, who was a very famous newspaper uh, publisher, later was the uh, Democratic and Liberal Republican nominee for president in, in 1872. Um, he, he wrote that now that slavery is gone, there is absolutely no pretext for preventing the uh, Southern blacks from having arms. And, and I think he was right. And that, that's why the, the gun ban lobbies are wrong to say, well, you know, look, look at what Mississippi did to black people in, in 1850 uh, about preventing them from having guns. That's that's a good pre that that shows what the Second Amendment means. No, it doesn't, because we by enacting the 13th Amendment, among the things we the people did was fortify our constitutional right to arms by obliterating 
a particular pretext that had been used to disarm some Americans. Yeah. And, and same thing with the 14th Amendment, uh, which uh, protects the privileges and immunities of all citizens of the United States, says everyone who's born in the United States, you know, except foreign diplomats in some exceptional cases, is, is a citizen of the United States. Uh, you can't violate, you can't uh, violate their, the right to due process of law. All that cumulatively means that the restrictions on free people of color, which also a lot of the Southern states had, those were deliberately obliterated as well. So the fact that in North Carolina in 1845, a free black person could only have a gun if a local judge granted him a one-year license, that's gone. That's not a precedent anymore to justify gun control in 2023. Mm -hmm. But and and similarly with with Native Americans, uh, you know, because because uh, obviously a lot of people look at that in the same light as these bigoted uh, laws against African Americans or Black people owning firearms. But yeah. uh, there's there's maybe even a little bit more of a uh, an interesting twist to it that that you guys describe in this brief that I haven't really heard sure. uh, articulated elsewhere, which has to do with the fact that Native Americans at the time were you know living in in what were uh, sovereign nations and they weren't yeah. part of the people uh, right. protected by the Bill of Rights. Is, can you just uh, explain that a sure. little bit? So the, the Second Amendment protects the right of the people to keep mm -hmm. and bear arms. So today, let's say there's some guy who lives in Moscow and says, I would like to buy a fine American-made gun and the United States has arms export control regulations that prevent me from buying an American gun. And so he brings a lawsuit in federal court and says, well, my Second Amendment rights are being violated. The answer to that is, no, they're not, because you're not one of the American people. You're a Russian. You know, the, the, our U.S. Constitution sets up a system of government and rights for the American people, and it doesn't purport to say to create government or rights for Russians or Frenchmen or anybody else other than the American people. At the time of the, when the Second Amendment was ratified and the Constitution just a few years before that, most Indians lived in Indian tribes that were sovereign. So say the, the, the Cherokee nation, uh, had treaty relations with the United States. If there's an agreement between the American, between the U.S. government and the Cherokee, it gets ratified if the, by the U.S. Senate by a two-thirds vote if the Senate agrees, the same way as a treaty with, with France or Russia or the United Kingdom or anybody else. And being members of a non-American nation of course, Indians who were living in their own tribes couldn't have Second Amendment rights because, by definition, they weren't part of the people of the United States. And but but, but from but, your your argument here is that this is a precedent that could be used to uh, justify a modern analog. Modern analog, but that modern analog would be for non-citizens, uh, foreign nationals, essentially, right. and it, being able to restrict their access to firearms. Exactly. Not, 
that's not right. American citizens. So we say, for example, you know that that's why uh, f- today a, a foreigner who enters the United States on a tourist visa by federal law can only possess arms uh, for sporting activities or if the foreigner has a, a hunting license from right. some state. And because, that doesn't violate the Second Amendment because of this. No, you're this you're, 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 this you're, you're, the, you're visiting from Italy and we welcome you and spend money and, and see our wonderful country. But you're not one of the people in the United States. So you can't have Second Amendment rights in the United States. And and, and that's right. The the things about non-Indians who were not who were members of their own nations, not of the United States, is a applicable analogy to that. But, then, but course, it's not applicable to Rahimi, essentially. No, Rahimi's definitely a citizen. You know, he's hmm. he's a he's a dangerous person. He's not virtuous, but he's you know, there's no dispute. He's an American citizen, so of course he's one of the people. And so the, the those citizenship analogies wouldn't be relevant to this particular case, or so so argues our brief. But right. then, just to get back to the Indians, mm-hmm. some Indians, yeah, because it doesn't apply to them anymore either, right? Because that that no, relationship has changed. So, you know, even at, at, at whether in the in 1787 with the original Constitution or 1868 with the ratification of the 14th Amendment, both of those distinguish between Indians who are taxed versus those who are not taxed. Indians who are taxed were are represented in Congress. They're part of congressional apportionment for the House of Representatives, and they're choosing to live in American society. So, of course, they have, in my view, Second Amendment rights, whereas Indians who were still, say, as of 1868, you know, living in the Cheyenne or Ute tribes with their own uh, some amount of sovereignty still uh, not being taxed, weren't weren't among the people at that time. Now, all Indians are American citizens uh, because of the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924. So of course they have all the the same rights as any as every other American citizen, and the the full scope of the right to keep and bear arms. Right. Yeah. No. I just think it's an interesting perspective because uh, usually when uh, these these bans on selling firearms to to Native Americans come up, uh, it's either in the context of this shows you can uh, disarm people who are viewed to be dangerous because the the founding generation viewed Native American tribes as, as potentially dangerous or as bigoted laws that were there just uh, because um, the people were bigoted against Native Americans at the time. And, and you're saying there's a, there's perhaps another way of looking at this that's a bit more historically accurate. Yes, and, 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 and it's just it, it's simpler. And one of the things is you don't have to make moral decisions about the past or the present. You just have to look at what the what the Constitution says. And what, one of the clear things is Congress has the right to regulate trade with foreign nations or the Indian tribes. That's part of the that's part of the Commerce Clause of Article One, Section Eight. So if Congress in seven in 1805 said, well, we're not going to allow gun as uh, or 1800, say, with the uh, the Quasi War going on with France, we're not going to allow arms exports to the French. Congress can do that. Congress can regulate free foreign trade pretty much the way it wants. And that's just it. So if Congress tomorrow passes a law saying, you know, 
no gun sales to uh, Jamaica, it can. And neither the Jamaican government nor the Jamaican people have Second Amendment rights. And you don't have to argue about, well, you know, is, is Jamaica dangerous or not? Maybe. I mean, maybe that's why Congress did it. But that doesn't even matter. Congress just has near plenary authority over trade with foreign nations. And that includes trade with Indian nations. And, and actually, a lot of the congressional treaties, when an Indian nation decided, well, we want to be in, in amicable relations with the U.S., would authorize a certain amount of, of firearms trade uh, with that nation. And conceivably, we wanted it, but if an Indian nation was at war with the United States, then we generally wouldn't allow arms sales to them, just like we don't, you know, <laughs> we didn't allow arms sales to Germany during World War II either. It, it's, and, and again, it, it's not, you know, is this proves some principle about dangerous. It, it, danger, it just proves that Congress can regulate foreign trade with non-Americans. Okay. And so uh, just getting back to the, before we wrap up here, the, the base, the basic argument laid out in your brief, um, you know, just, just for people to have, have something to take away here at the end. Um, uh, Rahimi, you view, you know, it seems that there is enough evidence to, uh, and uh, to prove that he's a dangerous person, yes. that he's a danger to society, that um, he's not somebody who, Gun owners would want to own a gun, or anybody right. would necessarily want to own a gun. But that doesn't that doesn't mean that this law he's been convicted under is completely constitutional. That's the issue. You exactly. see one section of it as as okay, but another section that's problematic. Precisely, and as the brief says, you know, Congress could solve the problem very easily. You've got the C one, which is credible threat finding of a credible threat, or C2, which is no finding at all. The judge just says, you know, don't do anything bad in the future. All Congress has to do is change one word. Instead of saying C1 or C2, Congress could just say C1 and C2. It's one word, and then, then we're fine, because then nobody will get subject to this unless we've found the credible threat. Right. At least as far as the the who question here of who Precisely. can be yes. be subject to these sorts of restrictions, yeah. not the question of what what kind of restrictions are okay or what, whether the the totality of the process to getting that uh, credible threat conclusion is is constitutional. Those are sort of different questions than what you're addressing here exactly. in this brief. That's right. Uh, and then at the same time, much of the analogies brought up by the government in this case aren't applicable because uh, of the reasons you just laid out. They talk about people who were considered outside of, well, the people of the United States that were protected by the Second Amendment. And also they've been, uh, a lot of them have been superseded by constitutional changes since then. That's, um, that's right. Including the initial adoption of the Second Amendment itself. That's right. Although to, to be fair to the, the Solicitor General's office representing the U.S. government, they only have a few of these bad laws that were repudiated by constitutional enactment and their citations. It's really the, the amici, the, uh, you know, the, the intelligence and, and really primarily the, the gun ban, uh, organizations, uh, in their, their amicus briefs that, that focus so much, um, on saying, Oh, my, modern laws against Catholics and slaves and free people of color. Those tell us how to interpret the modern second amendment. 
it, it, it's more an amicus problem. Although the U.S. government has done a lot of these sightings of bad laws in in other cases in lower courts, the only really post 1789 thing that they cited um, that was overtly discriminatory was uh, California in 1854 or 55 enacted the the Greaser Act, which which was against uh, American citizens of Mexican ancestry. Um, but uh, other than that, the, the government brief was reasonably clean in not using the uh, the bad stuff, which I, I hope they will adopt that policy going forward in, in all their cases. Hmm. Okay. Well, look, we appreciate you coming on and, and laying out your arguments in this brief. I think it's one of the more interesting ones that's been filed uh, with the court in Rahimi. So I think uh, we'll have to see where the court comes down on all of this um, once it releases its its decision after oral argument. I mean, we still have a ways to go, obviously, before that happens. Probably not till next year, right? Or what are you thinking? Oh, yeah, know, likely June? not next year, but it, it, it's moving fast. It, you know, basing, based on the briefing schedule. And in fact, even as we're taping this, the government's reply brief hasn't been filed yet. And they've got oral arguments scheduled in the Supreme Court, I think, on November 7th which you, you would normally a case with this kind of schedule, you'd have oral argument in December, but the the court, for whatever reason, has moved this up for a month. So they may be interesting. In, interested in moving this along uh, more quickly and not having it be in that you know set of blockbuster cases that comes out in the final week in, of June at, at the end of the court's term. Yeah. So maybe we'll get it before June yeah. then. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll get it before anyone is expecting. Uh, you but never know at the court, I guess. Not not a, very unlikely in time for Christmas because um, it <laughs> right. still takes a while to write the opinions. Sure, certainly. Uh, and I would imagine there's uh, this will be an interesting one to see where all the justices come down on on the final uh, opinion here. And, and if, if how many uh, you know concurrences and dissents we get out of that. Well, um, and, and Justice Katenji, Katenji Brown Jackson um <laughs> but for, for Justice Katenji Brown-Jackson, this, this will be her first big Second Amendment case. So it'll be interesting to see. And I will say that someone I know who's a big admirer of her uh, said, oh, you know, your you're kind of thing is the kind of stuff she she's interested in. Because she mm -hmm. actually does think about her. She considers herself uh, in her Senate Judiciary confirmation hearings uh, to be an originalist. Hmm. You know, yeah, she she does come off at least uh, as far as left leaning judges, however you want to describe her, go uh, as uh, something of a civil libertarian, maybe. Yes, um, you know, obviously she didn't have a, a super long history to look at, but there were a couple things where, uh, you know, we I wrote about this at the time, uh, I believe, where it's like maybe maybe she she uh, is a, a bit more of a wild card than some of the yeah. other liberal justices. Uh, I guess that's what we'll find out here in this case. Um, you know, obviously, the context of domestic violence being involved is very sensitive, I think, for a lot of yes. a lot of people. So but, uh, you know, how the court comes down on this could have a huge impact. I suppose it could. Maybe they'll punt. Uh, you never know. But uh, right. however they decide it, if they if they give us more than a couple paragraph opinion, it would probably have a huge impact down the line. Right. Is that your expectation? It'll be a really crucial guidance as courts think about other ways, uh, at, least, at least on the who issue, which is what we yeah. wrote about, you know, who, who can have their rights restricted. And it, it also 
might get a lot into the due process issues, when, mm. which yeah. our, our brief didn't cover, but it's certainly a very important topic. And yeah, you know, Cato has a brief on that. that yeah, I think is uh, valuable as well. Yeah. But all right, well, we will uh, we'll have to see where the court goes. I think we'll probably try to have a couple more uh, amici on the show before then. We we already had uh, a guest on the other side of the the aisle from uh, your point of view, and uh, and I think these are valuable conversations. So I really appreciate you uh, giving us your perspective as well. Well, well, thank you, and and it's great for American citizens to be able to actually learn about these things, you know, including through your website in a more serious pro con way than the kind of ridiculous way it's, it's often very superficially covered uh, in a lot of mainstream media that, that don't tell you what's really going on in the mechanics of a case. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, and look, if people want to follow your writing, obviously you do more than just file amicus briefs. So where can they do that? Uh, go to my website, davecopel.org, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-L.org. Uh, tremendous amount of stuff there, all for free. And they can also follow me on Twitter, at Dave Copel. D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-L. All right. Wonderful. Well, we're going to head over to our news update now. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, as always, by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? I'm doing all right, Jake. How are you? Doing pretty well. Pretty well. Can't complain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we had uh, really bad news this week out of Israel, of course. Um, really horrific stuff uh, that's still ongoing there, unfortunately. Uh, a horrible attack by Hamas on civilians that is really pretty unspeakable um, barbarism, honestly. I mean, that's, that's, I think, the only way you could describe what's coming out of there. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, and we actually have a story that is related to this to some degree, um, or I guess directly, which uh, is the the uh, Minister of National Security over in Israel announced that they're going to loosen their gun laws, at least to some degree, in the wake of this attack uh, to try and arm as many civilians um, or Israelis as possible. So, um, yeah, they, they uh, are undertaking a number of measures um, but the, you know, Israel actually has some fairly strict gun laws, at least relative to the United States. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure a lot of American gun owners are not going to see these, these changes as, uh, um, something that gets them much closer to, uh, our system here, of course, but they have made a, a number of changes, including, uh, there's an interview you have to do when you uh, obtain your gun carry permit that has to be in person. They've moved that to being a phone interview. Um, that is, you do see that occasionally in the United States as well in some of the stricter uh, areas. But uh, you know they, they increase the number of uh, rounds you can buy if you have a permit, uh, which is not something that you know, is, is pretty foreign for us, uh, from 50 to a hundred. Um, they've done a number of, uh, things like, um, in Israel, apparently you have to, um, you have to maintain a, uh, training schedule in order to keep your firearms. 
And so if you don't do the required training, you have to turn in your guns. And now they're saying that people who've turned in their guns for that reason in the last six months can go and pick them back up. Um, and additionally, you have to, they have a permit to purchase system there and they have allowed anyone who had a permit to purchase, but didn't use it by its effective date to go and, uh, use it, uh, now. So, you know, a number of changes with the goal of allowing more people to be armed in the wake of this, uh, widespread terror attack on civilians that has seen all sorts of horrific incidents of, uh, murder and beheadings and, um, sexual violence and just indescribable stuff that I'm sure most of you have already uh, seen news of to this point. But um, yeah, it has led to some reform, at least emergency temporary reform of Israeli gun laws at this point. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that, you know, this keeps happening globally, but, you know, between this and Ukraine, you're starting to see at least some governments recognizing at least the value or sometimes the occasional necessity of this decentralized form of defense for their civilians. Um, you saw a similar thing play out in Ukraine in the initial invasion of, of when Russia invaded. Uh, this is, as you pointed out, a little slightly different than the way the Ukrainians handled it. There's not yeah. people handing out rifles in the streets to, to able-bodied men. It's, it's still you know, a, a regulated process that's going on, but it is still noteworthy that, as you pointed out, they had fairly strict gun laws before this and that they're you know, yeah, out of necessity, having to at least loosen those somewhat to allow the civilian populace to defend themselves and to get engaged in this what's becoming a, a pretty nasty war. So, right, it's not it's not the same level as what happened in Ukraine, where they handed out you know ten thousand rifles in the street, right. um, and they changed their their laws uh, on self defense in uh, in their Congress there, but. Uh, you know, this is sort of an emergency action taken by a, a minister of national security that mildly loosens the gun laws. Uh, he do, his estimates did put it at several thousand people will be affected by this. Israel is not a very large country, right? Uh, you know, obviously compared to the United States. Um, and so that is a pretty significant number of people that uh, he, you know, there's, uh, he gave a couple of different estimates for these different rule changes and who the, how many people they defect. So, um, you know, it, it's, and Israel is, is, uh, obviously, um, also a country that has a lot of, uh, military members in service at any given time, uh, right. due to the nature of, you know, being surrounded by, uh, oftentimes by enemy states, um, who have invaded them a number of times in the past. Um, and then also being, continually harassed by these terror groups, um, just not to the level that we've seen, uh, here recently. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, it does show uh, directionally. It's the same impulse, obviously to allow people to arm themselves and resist an invasion by, uh, you know, a group that wants to kill them, um, right. if not worse. Right. So, uh, yeah, that, that was uh, one of the developments that happened in Israel, of course. Uh, they are obviously on, uh, on uh, they're at war now uh, with uh, Hamas, and uh, we would expect to see 
more violence in the coming weeks and months. Um, and, you know, people, civilians in Israel are obviously a target in, in this. They've always been. But, um, you know, this is sort of an unprecedented situation. It's the worst attack since uh, the worst single day of uh, mass killings of, of, of Jewish people since the Holocaust, is my understanding. So um, it's a really different situation there now. And it'll be uh, something to, to watch as to whether they continue to loosen their gun laws in the wake of this. Uh, you know, some of this is undercut by just uh, serving in the military there is, is um, uh, I think, mandatory for most men. So, um, you know, the able-bodied men are all going to be called up to uh, be armed by the military. So uh, that uh, sort of uh, is a bit different than what you would see in the United States or somewhere else with the much larger population. But um, uh, yeah, but it's certainly the case that I would imagine a lot of people there would want to be armed uh, inside their own homes at this point. That's a good point. Yeah. Really obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, it's sad, sad day um, in, in Israel. Um, and, uh, you know, we're praying for the victims there. Absolutely. And, and um, yeah, I mean, and we'll of course continue to follow this. And I think it's also probably having an effect here in the United States as well on, on American Jews, uh, who probably, um, are worried themselves. Um, you've seen obviously rallies in support of this barbaric attack throughout the United States, not huge rallies, but still, um, people openly celebrating this. Um, and so, uh, understandably, I'm sure people are, worried here too uh you know anti-semitism is is a a very has a very long history throughout the world uh, including here in the united states um even today and so uh, we've we've talked to you know a number of jewish groups in the past on the show about um the the effort to arm uh, american uh, Jewish population as well. And I would imagine that's going to, uh, there's going to be an effect on that as well from all of this. So those, these are the sort of things that we're going to be following here uh, as this unfolds, obviously, uh, you know, the main thrust of the the news, of this is on the attacks and on the, the war. And, you know, there are a lot of really good sources of information from, for that. Uh, we of course are focused on gun policy. So that's, that's where our our priority will be as we on as this all unfolds and we continue to report on it. But um, what else do we have this week? Yeah. So some of the link, uh, links from the newsletter. Um, first thing that we have is the official grand opening of, of the new Smith and Wesson headquarters in Tennessee, which is big because they were sort of part of this ongoing trend that you've seen of major gun manufacturers that have historically been located predominantly in the Northeast, uh, which a lot of people think of as, typically less friendly to gun business, gun ownership. They obviously have stricter gun laws. Yeah, at least now. And they're sort of the biggest example of historical companies moving from that location to a lot of Sunbelt states. And in this case, Tennessee would be one of those. Um, So it's just interesting that they're officially up and running. Uh, It wasn't without controversy. I think some some gun control groups held a protest outside of their their headquarters for the grand opening. But uh, officially, 
relocated in Tennessee now. You know, protests like that, you want, you, like, they just don't want gun companies to exist, I guess. What is the, right. <laughs> you know, it's just a, you see some of these protests outside of gun stores or gun companies. And uh, I mean, I guess, you know, Smith and Wesson makes AR-15s and firearms like that. So um, as basically all major gun companies do. Um, so I guess you could be protesting just that part of their business. But, you know, uh, sometimes it feels as though uh, these protests are aimed at just gun companies generally yeah just guns yeah at all yeah anyway um yeah i mean that's this is part of a larger movement as you mentioned right this is uh they're really being pushed out of these other states sure um, where the the governments there are hostile to them and and their businesses so uh, they don't really have much of a choice at this point which is unfortunate i think um but that's the political reality of it. You don't want to be the target of some sort of legislation from uh, politicians who despise your industry. So, right. You know, what, what are they supposed to do? Um, <clears throat> it's just unfortunate that that's the point that we, the country has reached where uh, the polarization has gotten to where you can't even operate a company like Smith and Wesson in uh, Massachusetts anymore. Um, so, but you know, that, that's, that is the reality of these companies. And obviously you also see red states sort of trying to draw them in by offering tax incentives and yeah. things of that nature. Too. It's certainly a two way, so, a give and take kind of thing. Yeah. You're, yeah. You're it's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, what else? We the got? next, yeah. Next link we got comes to us from the out, an outlet called bridge Michigan, um, with an interesting report, some interesting reporting on the reaction of law enforcement officials to their new red flag law. So Michigan, this past legislative session, became one of the latest states to adopt a red flag law. It hasn't taken effect yet, but we now have the head of the Association of Chiefs of Police speaking out, expressing, vocally expressing com- some concerns about how his officers are going to be expected to handle these red flag orders. He's sort of it's interesting. Some of the critiques that he levied are similar to some that have been raised by gun owners in that he's worried that it's going to create armed confrontations with potentially unstable people. And he's kind of worried that his officers are going to be put into harm's way by being asked to enforce these confiscation orders. Uh, so it's just interesting that uh, the head of the Chiefs of Police Association is raising these. Yeah, I mean, he's right. You know, that, that is a byproduct of these laws. Uh, I mean, obviously, you're going to have that anytime you you confiscate a firearm from somebody who doesn't want you to. Um, and in this situation with red flag laws, there's going to be likely more of those encounters because it's easier to get a red flag order than it is to, you know, take the, for somebody to be convicted in a court, for instance, have to give up their guns that way. Um, so there's legitimate concerns there about what happens when police show up to someone's house. And in the case of a red flag order, um, you know, I don't want to speak to Michigan's law specifically, but generally speaking, these are often ex parte orders where the person subject to it doesn't even know that they are subject to it. So cops just show up one day and say, give us your guns. Um, and you haven't even heard that you, um, that this was something that could possibly happen to you. That's going to create, especially in a situation where the person actually is. Um, unstable, right? right. Uh, which I think is still most, 
you know, obviously people are concerned about potential abuse of red flag laws. That's a big sticking point for a lot of gun rights advocates on uh, on this topic. But, uh, you know, they they are used generally, as far as I'm aware, uh, in cases where people are a threat to themselves, or rather usually a threat to themselves. Yeah. But, um, you know, and, and someone like that uh, who is unstable, it could be a, absolutely a, a, a tipping point for them, uh, especially if you know, just and there's unpredictable as to what's going to happen when police show up there. So, uh, yeah, the concern over how exactly to carry these out uh, is very, very real, even if you're somebody who supports red flag laws like these are not. um they're not easy policies to enforce in a lot of cases. I mean, you know, most of them, you might not have an issue, but uh, it was just like a domestic violence call. Yeah. Um, you know, you show up and maybe police showing up diffuses this, the circumstances. Um, but oftentimes the opposite happens. That's and right. It is. So, you know, police showing up, having to show up more often to these other sorts of dangerous situations. I can understand why they'd have concerns about that. Even, Again, even if you support this policy, I right. think it is the right policy. This is the reality of it. That's why I think it's telling that he is a he's not a rural county sheriff who's, you know, declaring that his officers won't enforce this, right? It's the head of the chiefs of police. So I think yeah. someone like that speaking towards this really goes to show that this is a complicated issue and it, there are some sort of thorny issues that come with the territory when you're talking about these orders. Yeah, because usually chiefs of police, uh, first of all, they tend to serve in larger city areas, yeah. more urban areas, and they tend to be uh, appointed by politicians who tend to be, you know, Democrats if you're in uh, a more urban area. And so there's often a divide on gun laws between sheriffs who are elected directly in more rural areas and uh, chiefs of police who are appointed in more urban areas. Uh, and and so, yeah, it is interesting to see uh, chiefs of police, like the head of chiefs of police group coming out and saying that um, for exactly the reasons you just outlined. So, well, you know, as these laws become more popular, as the, the new ones are implemented, I mean, we, we've already talked about there's probably they're probably close to hitting the ceiling on uh, political reality right now for yeah. red flag laws. But. Uh, they, we did have a couple of them pass just recently. And so, uh, you know, as implementation gets rolling on those, uh, it'll be important to watch how they play out in practice. Absolutely. And then the last uh, sort of quick hit we're going to do actually hasn't even been reported yet, but uh, it's the fact that the federal government has officially appealed the decision out of the Third Circuit uh, in the Range v. Garland case. Uh, listeners and readers of The Reload might remember this case as the circuit decision that found that, at least in this particular case, the federal prohibition on felons, in this case a nonviolent felon, uh, was unconstitutional. So yeah. we'll see what happens there or if the Supreme Court decides to take it, but this could potentially be big. As applied to this particular defendant, yeah. the Third Circuit said it was unconstitutional. This defendant was somebody who was convicted of, um, I believe it was welfare fraud or food stamp yeah. fraud, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is very similar to, I think it was the 10th Circuit. It was 8th or 10th Circuit. They had a very similar case where it was welfare. Oh, yeah, 10th uh, Circuit. Yeah. Writing bad checks or something along those lines by a homeless woman. And the, it was a couple thousand dollars of money involved. And nobody served jail time. That was similar across these two cases, but the two courts came to completely different conclusions. 
the Third Circuit said that uh, this guy who uh, he lied about his income so he could get food stamps, basically. And he was fined a couple thousand dollars and was sentenced to probation, never served any time in jail. But because he could have served up to you know, beyond a year in jail for this crime in Pennsylvania at the time in the 90s, uh, he has been prohibited from running guns for his entire life now since that point. Yeah. And um, that's what the Third Circuit found was unconstitutional, that the, clearly this person uh, would not have been disarmed, especially for life uh, during the founding era is sort of the conclusion that they came to. And uh, whereas out in the uh, the other case is very similar at the, the circuit level, uh, that court came to the opposite conclusion that the felon in possession law is constitutional, um, even as applied to a nonviolent felon uh, in very similar circumstances. So the court is probably going to have to answer this question very soon anyway. Uh, I think he wrote about that actually a little yeah. while back in an analysis piece. Uh, so people should check that out if they want a little more detail. But um, yeah, now it seems like the government is going to force the issue, which is kind of fascinating uh, to me that they took that strate strategic step to appeal this case. Uh, you know, they they appealed the um, the Rahimi case, where I think most experts have agreed that the government is on much firmer footing, at least at least in the optics of the case. Uh, you know, and perhaps also in the the historical analysis involved. But um, I think most people, this this is a case that gun rights advocates wanted. Right. You know, the range cases, that's what the gun rights advocates wanted the, the court to take, or they wanted to take range and Rahimi at the same time or, or what have you. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see what the court does. Usually they grant these sorts of cases to the government. The government kind of gets priority when it's appealing to the Supreme Court over um, you know everyone else. And that's because the Supreme Court's part of its job is to sort of settle these disputes. And um, they don't like it when federal laws are enforced differently in different parts of the country because it kind of undercuts the whole point of the federal government at that absolutely point, at that moment. But so I would be surprised if they don't take it. Uh, I think that would be a pretty remarkable situation. Um, although we'll have to talk to some, some Supreme Court experts if that does happen to see what, you know, what people are, are thinking. But, um, yeah, and if they do take it, I would be surprised if they don't uphold the Third Circuit as well. Uh, but, they, you know, the, if they uphold the Third Circuit's decision, they probably have to come up with some way of judging whether somebody is a violent felon or a nonviolent felon. That's why I wonder if, if Rahimi plays a role in this, depending on how yeah. they decide that case, if there's mm -hmm. uh, if, if dangerousness or something is persuasive to them in that case, that could perhaps be the rationale that they have then applied to cases like range. So a lot of fascinating stuff that I, I think we'll get a lot of clarity on fairly, fairly soon, as you pointed out. Yep. And then our last story is one that you wrote, which is uh, about the, the Supreme Court. Again, there's a lot of action at the Supreme Court just recently here. They also... Uh, Alito stepped in in the ghost gun case once again to issue a, a temporary stay yeah. on the latest injunction uh, against the the Biden administration's rule. Um, and so we're still waiting on what's going to happen there, too. Um, but the court has been 
all over the place <laughs> in news re <laughs> recently. Uh, they didn't take any new cases this this week, uh, so you know that's one thing to be aware of. The the government has appealed that Third Circuit case. They haven't taken it yet. I think it's maybe a bit too early in the process for them to yeah. announce that they're taking it. Is might be the reason, but um, regardless, uh, we also got some polling on what people are thinking about the court. That's right. Yeah. So <clears throat> Marquette University Law School has been one of the only outfits to kind of consistently poll the public's perception on the Supreme Court's Bruin decision. And the, the latest poll that I wrote up this week shows that it is still quite popular with the American people. They found that 64 percent of the people said that they approve of the decision. And the way they phrased it was is about Bruin's core holding where uh, subject to some restrictions, people have a right to carry a gun in public for self-defense. And so 64 percent being in support of that. And that's been actually pretty remarkably stable. Uh, it's going back to at least last November, they found almost the exact same breakdown. It's, I think it's quite telling that people are broadly on board with the right to bear arms, at least subject to some restrictions. So, Yeah. And uh, the, what was the intensity gap on that? Yeah. So the largest single subgroup of approve, disapprove was people that strongly approve. Uh, I believe it was 40% said that they strongly approve. And then the smallest single subgroup was strongly disapprove. And it was only 15% said they strongly disapprove. So there's not only was the balance in favor of the approval, it's quite strongly in favor of people that are, have really strong feelings about this case and support yeah. it. Right. And uh, interestingly, they the decision itself, Bruin, is more popular than the court at this point, right? Yeah, so the, the it's funny, the trends are sort of going the opposite direction. Um, if you look back at their previous polling, the approval overall for the Supreme Court has kind of ticked down, and it's down near one of its multi-year lows. Uh, but Bruin has only seen an increase in support. They, they polled it, I believe, like a month after the decision was handed down, and it was only like a simple majority that said they approved of the Bruin decision, and now it's 64%. Meanwhile, the court's overall approval has sort of ticked down, so... There's something that there is as interesting. Well. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, like, you know, we've talked about this a number of times in the past. The, the court to this point has only uh, taken cases and, and made decisions on things that where their position was already popular generally throughout the country. Right. Like when they took Heller and they struck down the handgun ban in D.C., there were only like two of those left in the entire country in cities right. like in DC and Chicago. Right. And so it was already super popular that, uh, in America for people to be able to own firearms, don't own handguns. And then when they did, uh, Bruin, by that point, concealed carry was already legal in, almost the, well really the entire country and then there were only eight states that had this may issue uh, restrictive form of gun carry permitting right that the court struck down as unconstitutional so it was already pretty popular uh by then and and this poll might be something of a reflection of that like if you're just asked if people are just asked if they think uh it's a right to carry a gun for self-defense um it seems like they're perhaps they would just agree with that sentiment and hearing that the Supreme Court found that, uh, you know, I don't know how much that plays in or what's what's what it's reflective. Like, how does the average person really have a, a very encyclopedic knowledge of, of Bruin? I mean, if they listen to the show, they do. <laughs> but <Right>. um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, generally, it's probably just a reflection of whether they like the basic principle at play. And it seems like they 
they do. So that's where, you know, things like Rahimi, uh, yeah, you could take that and, and apply it to that case and try to judge where it's going to come out. Um, and, and so uh, whether that holds or not for the future Second Amendment cases, we'll have to we'll have to see. But um, to this point, yeah, they've really only done things when it's after it's already pretty popular and they're only right. really going after these outlier laws, um, which is sort of part of what they talked about in these decisions. So uh, interesting, though, that it's remained high while the court itself has seen a, a drop in approval. So, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely something that's noteworthy. I wish we did get more polling. Obviously, one poll is right uh, better than no poll, but it'd be great if we could have several of them. Um, but uh, it's still I think it still tells us a lot. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, that's all we've got for this week. Appreciate you guys tuning in. Um, if you like what we do, please head on over to the reload.com and buy a membership today. It's how we make this all happen. It is the only f- source of funding for the reload. And um, of course, if you buy a membership, you, you don't just get to help support our reporting. You also get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis Uh, and stories that you will not find anywhere else. You will also get this show a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment. Uh, If you want to be on the member segment, just reach out to your special exclusive Sunday newsletter that only members get and uh, reply and and let me know and we'll schedule to come on. Um, But that's all we've got for this week. We will see you guys again real soon.